Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Tuesday, January 8th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me today in the studio via Skype, Mr. Asit Sharma. Asit, how's it going? Great, Jason. How are you doing? Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you, uh, to you too. Doing very well. I think we're off to a uh, uh, fantastic start, it seems like, here in the markets. Um, hopefully, we, we continue to see a little bit of recovery from what was such a tough uh, finish to 2018. Um, and I, I think we have some names on today's show that a lot of our listeners are going to enjoy hearing about. We're going to talk uh, home improvement and, and looking at Home Depot and Lowe's. Uh, we'll tackle a listener email question. But first, we're going to dig down a bit more into the e-commerce king of Latin America, uh, Mercado Libre. And Asit, Mercado Libre is a, a popular recommendation in a lot of our foolish services and a lot of a lot of uh, of our analysts here myself included like the business like what we've seen um, and I know that you have studied this business for for quite some time so uh, you know let's kick off with some of these questions here to get a little bit more of your input into where you see this business going and and what you think some of the opportunities and the challenges are I, I think when we talk about Mercado Libre it's it's often just immediately compared to Amazon right and that is Obviously, I mean it's the e-commerce uh, leader in in the Latin American region of, of of the of the world. But but given its focus on e- e-commerce, you feel like there's another aspect of this business that is really starting uh, to to show uh, real real production here, and it's going to become a bigger part of the business as time goes on, right? Absolutely, Jason. Um, I had the opportunity to cover. PayPal, which many of our listeners are familiar with and invest in uh, once a quarter for our premium services. Um, and I'm seeing stuff that I recognize from PayPal appearing in Mercado Libre's business uh, in that PayPal, of course, is an offshoot of eBay, which itself was an early investor in Mercado Libre. I believe they uh, sold their stake a couple of years ago. But uh, PayPal developed as a payment tech company, and it has expanded into this market. Uh, and in developing the technology to facilitate payments on its marketplace platform in Latin America, Mercado Libre is also coming to realize that it's got a great set of technical tools that can be rolled out for off-marketplace transactions. And that's something that I'm very interested in, just to read investors some stats from the company's most recent quarter. Um, and this was the third quarter of 2018. Mercado's, um, or this is Mercado Pajo, which is the payments arm of Mercado Libre. Their TPV, that's total payments volume, uh, increased 24% year over year to $4.6 billion. So what is total payments volume? That's not the amount of revenue that this arm of Mercado Libre can claim on its right. books. But it's, it, it would be nice. That would be. <laughs> but it is the amount of uh, payments volume that was transacted. And of course, as the company which is, or platform which is facilitating each transaction, Mercado Pajo gets a little slice of every payment that occurs. Uh, and this is a really interesting business simply because Latin America is a mobile-based economy, uh, or it's increasingly a mobile-based economy. And what I mean by that is if you look at the consumer side uh, of how business is transacted, 
infrastructure is not quite as great as it is in uh, other developing and developed regions. So in Latin America, and I'm familiar with this because I have relatives in India. My parents okay. were from India. Uh, oftentimes, you um, jump over that infrastructure using your mobile phone. So a lot of commerce is conducted um, on mobile phones. And this is a great opportunity because so much of Mercado Libre's business is moving to mobile payments. And I'll uh, delve into this a little bit more. What are your thoughts, Jason, on this payments opportunity? Well, I think that you you really piqued my interest when I heard the word PayPal. Uh, anybody who listens to our Monday uh, industry-focused financial show, uh, they they know that I and and uh, Matt Frankel are big fans of PayPal and Square, um, and, and also the behemoths in the in the industry, right? Mastercard and Visa. I mean, we love this payment space because uh, we are seeing that sort of secular move away from cash and more towards mobile payments. Um, and as you mentioned, Mercado Libre, they get a little slice of every transaction, and so uh, the total payments volume. Uh, metric that you that you pointed out, I think, is a really important one, and it's one that we look at when it comes to PayPal and Square quite often because you can see the billions of dollars that flow through PayPal's network today. Uh, it's significantly smaller on Square side, but also growing a little bit more quickly. And, and I think that that really shows you the opportunity that exists. More and more dollars flowing through those networks means more and more of those little slices of those transactions that these businesses get. And I think when you look at something like uh, the Latin American economy, uh, it, it is continuing to grow, continuing to prosper, and, and having a company that's really uh, leading the way, facilitating, facilitating those transactions, I think is really exciting. Uh, now, with that said, and we're talking about Latin America, there is a bit more uncertainty in that part of the world. Um, when you think about Mercado Libre from a payments perspective, what do you feel like some of the risks that come along for investors there? Well, one of the biggest risks is competition because it is a lucrative market and everybody wants to uh, grab the customer if possible. So while Mercado Libre has maybe um, one of the best head starts in the business, it's going to be challenged in the future by big banks like Banco Santander, which is also um, has been an investor in Mercado Libre, yeah. uh, PayPal itself is a competitor. And even we see the big uh, credit card companies, which are basically themselves facilitators of transactions like MasterCard and Visa, they have their own payments arms that eventually will compete with the companies they're partners with now. So that's one risk. Um, and a couple, when we were trading uh, notes, uh, kicking around ideas for the show um, that you had uh, sent over to me, I totally agree with Jason. So you'd mentioned uh, currency risk. That's always huge in these companies. Mercado Libre reports in US dollars, but it basically operates in local currencies in each of the big Latin American markets yeah. that it's in. Now, those include Brazil, um, which is now where it's headquartered, the company's headquartered, Argentina, where it was originally headquartered, uh, Venezuela. And Venezuela is uh, a really great example. It's a poster boy for the types of currency problems a country can have. Uh, now, Mercado Libre has deconsolidated Venezuela from its operations as a subsidiary. So, it's got a really like two lengths removed from re revenue that it gets from that <laughs> country. And Argentina itself is another example of a country which tends to have really high inflation and goes through massive periods of currency devaluation. And the biggest problem that this presents for a growth company like Mercado Libre is that over time, it's hard to get consistent results 
quarter after quarter because the currencies are swinging so much against the yeah. U.S. dollar. Um, I should mention uh, one other uh, note that you sent uh, over to me also, which is geopolitical risk. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to Venezuela. <laughs> uh, is it going to be a functioning government and country a year from now? We have an exodus of three million people from that country into neighboring uh, countries. Uh, this happens uh, periodically in Latin America. It it has a history of uh, internal revolution and strife to go alongside fabulously uh, developing economies with a long-term uh, growth potential. So these are some primary risks that are there. But again, Mercado Libre is has this early mover advantage and has weathered a few storms since it was originated in uh, 1999. It's been through a few cycles in various countries, so maybe better equipped than a, a newcomer to address some of these risks. Yeah, and I think I remember um, a while back doing some research on Mercado Libre and, and recognizing, number one, that so much of its success really is hinged uh, to Brazil. I mean, I think that really is that that's the the crux of their of their revenue stream. But but to your point, it, they they do make their money from a few different places. But it always struck me that the emergence of the middle class in Latin America is really a tailwind for a company like Mercado Libre as more and more people are coming online with mobile technology and enjoying being able to participate in e-commerce. And so I think those are all really great opportunities for Mercado Libre. And I tell you, one of the questions we always kick around on the on the team here at HQ is with Mercado Libre, given it's it's much smaller than than Amazon, uh, a lot of question around whether perhaps Amazon might consider acquiring Mercado Libre one day. You know the old saying there: sometimes it's easier to buy it than to try to build it. And Amazon does have a track record of of making some acquisitions to get into other parts of the world. They recently um, acquired the Middle Eastern e-commerce uh, player Souk, and I think that was back in 2017. And that was not a small acquisition. It was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 580 million dollars, I think. So, do you think Mercado Libre is is do you think the likelier path for Mercado Libre is that it gets acquired, or do you think that it's going to continue to grow and maybe do some acquiring on its own? I think the company is a great acquisition target for Amazon, uh, but anyone but Amazon is going to hesitate because they don't want to acquire this company only to have to compete with Amazon.com. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that uh, one of the advantages Mercado Libre has is that it's been really um, not reluctant to step into these economies which we've described are hard to operate within and, and because of the currency issues and inflation, they're hard to consistently make money in. And so, uh, because of this, almost no one but Amazon would want to acquire the company. Why hasn't Amazon acquired it yet? Uh, I'm not sure. I know that Amazon has had you know forays into Mexico. It has its own uh, game plan to increase its sales in Latin America, but this seems like such a logical choice. One of the factors which may be holding Amazon back is, of course, it just made a huge acquisition uh, in uh, Whole Foods, which yeah. uh, it actually went to the market and issued some debt. Now, Amazon, if you look at its balance sheet, it has a lot of leverage it can pile onto that balance sheet. So, mm -hmm. it certainly has the funds to do it. This uh, would be an, a, maybe an equivalent size transaction 
if I remember correctly, because Mercado Libre has maybe a $17.5 billion market capitalization, not too far from where Whole Foods was when Amazon acquired it. So I think that the ethos at Amazon is that we can probably build this better. They have Amazon has a more sophisticated logistics uh, operation. And for them, it's just a question of do we go ahead and invest and transfer our logistics expertise into Latin America? Uh, or do we maybe speed that up, acquire this company, and then enhance it with how um, our own distribution, warehousing, delivery facilities work? Uh, that's an open question. More intriguing, Jason, every year as it goes by and Mercado Libre continues to grow and perhaps that possibility com- becomes more remote. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that it seems like a very logical fit. And, and I think that I think Amazon is probably in a position right now, given the investment that they continue to make in India, for one, uh, not to mention the, the investment that they're trying to make in China to become a bigger part of that economy. We may get to a point where it's too, it's, we may get to a point where Mercado Libre has grown too much to where they're a little bit bigger than Amazon feels uh, comfortable acquiring. And so it is a bit of a tricky situation. They may have been forced at some point to just really decide, okay, which market is more important. And that's where they decided to start making all of their investments. And I suspect that probably uh, is the case, at least to an extent. But I mean, you can't, you can't eliminate a dark horse from coming in there. Uh, a company like Walmart, who Clearly, is making acquisitions to gain share sure. there. Uh, even something like Target, you just never know. I mean, these companies have a lot of a lot of resources at their disposal as publicly traded companies. So, you know, hey, that'll be one we get to keep an eye on. I think for for a while to come. And I know our listeners will enjoy being able to keep up with it. Uh, let's make a pivot from e-commerce with uh, Amazon and Mercado Libre, and let's talk a little bit about a couple of the big, more physical uh, retail behemoths here uh, in the United States. And and we're talking about the home improvement market and Home Depot and Lowe's. We talk a lot about Amazon and, and how everybody enters you know, into whatever market they're entering, and they, they try to figure out, okay, can, can Amazon compete with us? Can we, can we deal with the Amazon com- competition? Home Depot and Lowe's seem to be almost Amazon- Proof at this point, um, I'm not sure that changes anytime soon either. What do you think there? I think one of the advantages that both of these companies have had uh, is just the ethos of do it yourself. They both make it very easy to do small projects around the home. Uh, I know, and this is anecdotal, but personally, if I am 80% towards a project but have a couple of questions, I know I can go to the Home Depot, which is very close to where I live, and ask somebody there. Most of the people who are tired of seeing me on weekends, <laughs> so w- w- if I find one who's not going to avoid me, I'll go, I'll go grab them by that blue vest and, well, they and have ask nice a couple di- of questions. They have nice DIY videos on the site, too. <laughs> yeah, they tell me that when they see me. Go home and watch the videos. But I think this is part of uh, what's made... Uh, both companies successful in spite of Amazon is because they have an integrated approach, which in, involves the, the classes they give, involves installation services, and a very cyclical massive discount on big ticket items. If you notice, every spring, summer, uh, fall, maybe around Thanksgiving and at year end, inevitably, uh, you'll walk into your Home Depot or Lowe's and they have all the appliances grouped and have pretty massive discounts, which equal or beat what you might uh, get ordering the stuff piecemeal from Amazon. And I think most com- consumers still associate Amazon uh, with the little 
uh, stuff that, that you buy in a stream through the year, not big ticket items. And that's part of the reason that's helped. And also proximity. Mm-hmm. Both of these companies have uh, a fairly good, uh, evenly distributed uh, footprint of stores. As I said, if you live in even a smaller metropolitan area, I would call Raleigh maybe a mid-sized metropolitan area. It's not huge. It's not tiny either. There's going to be one or two of these stores uh, within distance uh, of most people in that urban area within a, a few miles. And that's helped them also is the physical footprint that was already evolving and, and pretty set before uh, Amazon came along. So I think in this economy, uh, both of these companies probably retain this Amazon proofness uh, unless we see Amazon just decide, wake up one morning, decide <laughs> to start building out some very nice um, beautiful do-it-yourself warehouses where you don't have to um, do anything to check out. You know, just walk out like their Amazon Go stores yeah. that they're testing out now. I feel like they. I feel like they'll probably take a pass on that, given given the strength that both Home Depot and Lowe's have displayed through the years. They really do seem to um, own own that market, and I just I have a hard time believing that Amazon could ever really get in there. And and fully give them a run for their money, and I think a part of that is speaking from the perspective of of a, of a homeowner. I mean, it, those those stores become invaluable resources. I mean, there's always something that needs to be done at your house, and I mean, even if you're renting, I mean, there's always something you can do when you're renting as well. And, and the other neat thing about these businesses is really they 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 do well regardless of the weather. You know, we hear a lot of these companies in the winter quarters and and going into spring they'll they'll cite weather as as being a, a problem and slowing down traffic, but typically with Home Depot and Lowe's, I mean, people are going there to get de-icer if it's cold and wintry and icy outside, but if spring hits, they're going to get fertilizer and flowers and so I mean, they do seem to be they they, they, don't, they don't have that same lumpiness that that the weather can um, offer some other in the retail space, but um you know, I, I one thing that is interesting to me with uh these two concepts and I and I wouldn't call myself a loyalist to either one. I just kind of go whichever one is closest. But it does seem like Home Depot has got something figured out compared to Lowe's because when you look at Home Depot, its market cap is is more than twice the size of Lowe's. They're bringing in around $30 billion more in revenue per year. But Lowe's is actually the concept with a bigger store footprint, right? They have more stores than Home Depot does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the new CEO, uh, this is Marvin Ellison, the new CEO of Lowe's has put his finger on it. There are certain cues uh, if you walk in as a consumer uh, that you get from a store, how it's laid out, uh, what the end caps look like, that's the end of the aisles, how attractive they are, is there old merchandise sitting around. And I'm not saying that Lowe's is is a sloppy place by any means, but uh, if you're used to observing this stuff, there are subtle cues. Um, Home Depot is just crisper in its retail presentation. It moves its inventory in a little crisper fashion. Uh, so CEO Marvin Ellison was appointed this summer, and he's trying to fix operational deficiencies. He himself spent 12 years at uh, Home Depot and was formerly the CEO of J.C. Penney. So this is a guy with a lot of retail experience. Um, he's looking at their supply chain. He's looking at poor utilization of labor, um, a lack of standardized truck loading processes. Mm-hmm. So when the trucks come up to a Lowe's, who goes out and unloads that truck? Is it an all hands on deck? Uh, is it uh, you know someone who's been scheduled? So these things, which if you think about them, may not seem big by themselves, 
as you add each operational deficiency up, it makes for a lot of lost sales, lost time. One of the things that Elson has pointed out is that if our labor is so involved with trying to move our inventory in an inefficient manner, that's less time they've got to spend with customers. I know, Jason, um, you're a big Starbucks follower and, and analyze that stock as well. That's something that even Starbucks uh, said in their last quarter that we want more of our uh, baristas to have customer-facing time. Yep. So I think he's got his finger on the pulse of what's really the difference between these two companies. And over time, even though Lowe's has that bigger footprint, I think that's each year helped Home Depot uh, get this edge year after year. The other place that manifests itself is in the income statement, uh, Home Depot's margins, uh, operating margins. So this is take revenue, take your cost of goods sold, and most of your just overhead expenses, that's what's left as operating income. When mm -hmm. you divide that by sales, um, Home Depot's operating margin is about twice that of Lowe's at 15%. So this, these are problems that are solvable and fixable. But Lowe's is sort of a turnaround story right now, whereas Home Depot is a story of optimizing what's already working. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up that operating margin uh, metric because that is such an important one to pay attention to, particularly in the retail space. It, it gives you such a, a clear picture as to how how efficient an operation leadership is running. I mean, and that is something always worth paying attention to. And, and another thing that um, struck me, I think a quarter or two ago, I was reading through a Home Depot call. And you know the headlines, I think, are always talking about macroeconomic challenges or a tightening housing market or interest rates are going up and yada, yada, yada. And that's all fine and dandy. But let's look at the business and let's look at really the trend that this that this business is involved with. And Home Depot and Lowe's are both benefiting from this. But management made a note on the call that there is data that says that by 2020, 54% of U.S. homes will be greater than 40 years old. And that's versus 51% of those homes in 2016. And that's all to say that we have an aging house base here in the United States. Our houses are getting older. And what happens when houses get older? Hey, you know what? They require a little bit of fixing up. And that's what Home Depot and Lowe's do so well, is they sell us that stuff to fix those houses up. So, I do like that long-term trend there. It does seem like they have a big market opportunity ahead of them. And I think that, uh, I mean, to my mind, investors should have their eyes on both of these companies. But I'm going to put you on the, on the spot here, Asit. And if you had to pick one of these names for the next five years from today, what do you think is the better investment? Is it Lowe's or is it Home Depot? Today I'm going to be a contrarian against myself. <laughs> I usually I love the underdog and I love a turnaround story. I love the opportunity to improve margins. So normally I would say, hey, no question, buy lows. You got five years. You have a relatively young, uh, very experienced CEO who's going to turn this around. They're going to bring their margins up to where Home Depots are. Both companies trade at the same uh, multiple against earnings, I believe. Don't have it right on me. I might correct this later, folks. But around 18 times forward earnings, they're 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 valued the same by the market. So typically, I would say, well, who has the better chance to improve earnings? It's Lowe's, and by that criterion, in five years, it ought to grow more in terms of market capitalization and, and price. But, but. <laughs> and this is a big but. <laughs> I I gotta like. Home Depot's path, it's, it's, it's optimizing now. One of the things that I was looking at and reviewing for this show is the company's supply chain, which they've engineered now to be 
um, the fastest, what they call the fastest delivery network in home improvement, they can reach approximately 95% of the U.S. population within two days or less with their parcel shipping. And you have a company which is already best in class. It has an opportunity in this market, as Jason pointed out, to um, pull market share as more and more homeowners improve rather than switch housing. And um, we saw this in the last recession. People couldn't trade up when the the Great Recession hit. So counterintuitively, both Lowe's and Home Depot started to prosper because folks with with the money they did have, they, they went to their local stores and did home renovation projects. And Home Depot, in any environment, can really take advantage of this. I do think Lowe's will catch up at some point in time. But in a five-year time frame, all things considered risk-adjusted, I guess I'm going to go with Home Depot. I, now, yeah, we'll, I can't we'll, blame you. Spot, I, I think you got to go yeah. with the strong one in the field. I mean, I, I like you, I felt like Lowe's might be the better opportunity given that it has the opportunity to make more improvements and really turn things around. But it is really hard to bet against Home Depot. It's just such a strong operation, and they have demonstrated such a long track record of success. I just, I, I, I agree. I can't go against it. I think for a while there, I was thinking Lowe's might might be able to uh, offer the better investment, and, and perhaps it will. But I feel like Home Depot is probably a bit more of a certainty. Uh, but hey, you know what? Listeners will will uh, get to get to hear us uh, keep keep tabs on these companies here over the coming years and and uh, so we'll 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 follow these stories along and keep everyone updated. Uh, before we take off today, Asit, we were both talking about an email that we received over the break here at Industry Focus and I thought it'd be an opportunity for us just to offer a couple of quick opinions uh, because I suspect we have a little bit of experience in this field. Um, the email reads, "Hi Jason, I'm just curious what would you recommend or consider as an emergency fund? I have a set amount aside, but should this range as you grow through your career? For example, should your emergency fund be 10% of your net worth at any given time? Thanks in advance for your help, Aravind. And Aravind, thank you for the email. Uh, we're sorry for getting to this so late. As I said, we got that email over the break, but we really thought it would make a, a good uh, topic for the show, so we wanted to give it its due attention. And I'll, I'll start with you, Asit. Uh, where, where do you fall on the emergency fund uh, discussion? Well, let's start with basics and work our way up uh, to a final answer. Basics to build an emergency fund that presupposes that you've got some spare dollars you can set aside. <laughs> and I know we all, uh, you know, all of our listeners are at different paths in their financial careers. Um, and you may be at a really great point or you, you may be struggling. But the point is to try to find some way to put something aside uh, each and every week. If you read a lot of personal finance articles on the web, you'll see a number. I see this number a lot, and Jason, I'm sure you do too. Uh, it's 400 to $500 or $600 as an emergency fund. And this comes mm-hmm. from studies. You'll see a yeah. headline. Uh, the, the average American doesn't have 400 bucks for an emergency. And I believe from you know the, the ones that I've skimmed over over the years, the, that number is being generated from your car breaking down. So if you had a car emergency yep. – that must be the average price because it takes four to five hundred dollars to to get your car out of the mechanic's hawk and um, get back on the road. So that's sort of the first step in when we think about emergency funds. But there's a progression also. If you just increase that number from let's say five hundred bucks to about fifteen hundred bucks, that might cover uh, your ability to pay your rent or mortgage in a month or have a brief small medical illness. 
So to me, that's another bucket that's very important. So you, you, as you see, as you can, you, you move up in these tranches. The next, uh, I borrow from the corporate world. Uh, what I used to advise people is to try to get six to 12 months of your operating expenses in your household right. uh, somewhere in a savings account. And finally, uh, Arvind, I think you hit it right on the head. <laughs> that 10% <laughs> number is a great number. Uh, if you look at people who are masters of finance and you study portfolio allocations, a lot of the really wise people um, who I've read in my career say that, hey, even if you're a, very invested in stocks and bonds, you should have some money in real estate and maybe about 10 to 15 percent of your money in liquid assets. Yeah. It could be cash. It could be maybe currencies, foreign currencies or or maybe a commodity like gold, which you can quickly convert to cash. So over time, maybe that, in my opinion, is a great goal to have. Because as you grow more wealthy, maybe an emergency for you might be <laughs> needing to tap in 10%. I hope I get there someday. <laughs> I'm a far away from that. But let me flip it back to you, Jason. That's sort of a broad, you know, four or five buckets that I see. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I like how you hit that in stages because I think there is an easy answer to just say, "Oh, have three to six months," and that's just the the standard rule. But but to your point, I mean, clearly the data out there shows that people are having a tough time saving, and and that is that is a challenge in and of itself. And I was recently at a uh, on a field trip with my older daughter. Uh, her school went to the Junior Achievement Financial Park here, and it was basically a day where they learn what it's like to be an adult. They get their paycheck, they have to calculate their net income, and then budget everything for monthly expenses. And those kids found out really quickly, number one, money doesn't go as far as they'd like it to, and number two, it seems like you need insurance for everything. <laughs> uh, but but the, the, you know, the old saw, and we kept on telling them, make sure you pay yourself first. Save a little bit of that money. And, and the younger you start doing this, the easier it gets. And it's not, the idea isn't to have that three or six months immediately. That's the goal to get to. And if you can reach that point, then that's terrific. And then the the other way to think about that too is once you get to that goal, you don't necessarily have to keep socking that money away for that particular fund. Um, you could be saving money for something else or investing that money. I mean, everybody's financial situation is unique. Um, I, I think that if you can have a three to six month cushion where you can afford your rent or your mortgage and your, your necessary bills in case of an emergency, uh, hopefully there is health insurance that will help if there's a medical emergency. Uh, that three to six months is a good goal to have. But to your point, the older you get, hopefully you're making a little bit more money and maybe you need to save a little bit more to cover your expenses then. And that's a nice problem to have, I suppose. Uh, that's where you want to get to eventually. But but I think that either way you look at it, uh, to me, what really stands out with this question is no matter what, the younger you start this, the better off you're going to be. And and um, it, it is just it, it's a good feeling to know you have some liquid cash available to take care of yourself in the case of an emergency, because chances are you're going to run into one of one or two of them uh, throughout the course of your life. Sure, I just add one one last thing. Even if you're not young anymore, there is a certain reward in just starting that discipline savings sure. uh, week in week out. However small it is, uh, it's rejuvenating. And it's very similar to you know something I know a lot of fools recommend, which is invest regularly. Don't just get a lump sum together and, and knock it all in the market. Try to invest with every paycheck. Um, and I think Jason, what, what you said really resonates with me uh, that the concept of paying yourself first. It is an old saw, but it's such a powerful concept. Pay yourself first, invest some, set some aside, 
there's a rhythm to it. And uh, no matter where you are in your financial progression, uh, you can always uh, put some aside each month, each week, each time you get paid. Uh, and it just has this wonderful compounding effect, which is, is lovely after time. Indeed. Well, we'll leave it at that. Asad, it was great talking with you this week. Thanks for the time. Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. This was fun. Okay. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Asit Sharma, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.